Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. I was just thinking, as, even as Matt was praying there, in the words of J.I. Packer, he says, There is no truer or happier way to describe Scripture than as God preaching to us. You know, this is the holiest moment in a church service, not because a preacher starts to, exalt, starts to pull apart and inform us of God's word, but this is the most important moment in the service because this is the moment where we actually just read God preaching to us. They're his words. He's talking directly to, to each and every one of us as his people. And we're just going to read three verses, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 9. If you like making notes, I've called this message, Jesus is coming soon. And these are his words. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's pray. Lord, it is so precious to be addressed by you. Lord, in the midst of our lives that are run at a thousand miles an hour, Lord, how kind that we get these moments just to pause and sit at your feet and hear your voice to us. And Lord, I pray that that's what we would experience this morning. That as your word goes forward, that we would hear your words, not mine. We'd hear your distinct voice, not my accent. Father, would you be with us? Lord, I thank you that you love to be with your people. People that you died for, your treasured possession your holy people, your royal priesthood. So Lord, I invite you, would you come afresh on these people? Lord, would we hear your voice and would we be changed or more in love with you as a result? In Jesus' precious name, amen. It was a couple of Mondays ago now that Emma and I were driving along. We're actually on the way to the beach, which sounds terrible when I'm saying it to you. Um, But on the way to the beach because it's just sunny in Australia and we have to suffer with the heat. It's awful. Um, But we're on the way to the beach and our Lydia calls us. Lydia's 17. She's in year 11. She's got one and a half years left at school. And she called us and she's in tears. And you're like, darling, what... What's happened? And she said, oh, my friend Adrian Hen has tragically and unexpectedly died last night. Just one of the kids in the year group. And at that point, no one knew why he had died, what had happened. But he had passed away. And it was just one of those moments as you're driving along, you think, I don't think I'll ever forget that moment, where I was, what was taking place. Because it's one of those moments where you just start to realize how fragile and finite life really is. You think you're going to live forever. You think you've got all the time in the world. And then your life comes to an end. It reminded me a time of some 12 years ago now, where my friend Pete Greasley called me and while I was in Sydney to let me know that Dan Gavetta, another pastor at Christchurch, had gone into basically unconsciousness at that point. And you're like, okay, well, you know, is he going to come back out of unconsciousness? And he's like, I don't know, but it's not, it's not looking good. Well, my friend about three weeks later actually passed away. He had just gone out um, to the gym, gone to work out, kissed his wife and his four kids goodbye as he just went to the gym for some time, never came home. 
Keeled over, had a brain aneurysm, and never came back. Actually died some 12 years ago. Now, life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think, isn't it? You never know when your time is up. Likewise, you never know when Jesus might come back. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 to 3 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's echoed in Revelation 16 verse 15. When we read, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. There's a theme all the way through Scripture that Jesus is coming back and you don't know when he's coming. And if you're sitting here in this moment and think, I'm pretty much guaranteeing he won't come today, that makes it more likely because he's going to arrive like a thief in the night. You're not going to know the time nor the place, but you know he is coming. And that's exactly what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. His point in the context of the letter is Jesus has died. He has risen. He has ascended at the right hand of God. The next thing he's doing is coming back. And the end of all things is at hand. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but what we do know is Jesus is coming Soon. Maybe sooner than you think. You know, the Bible teaches us that we are all now in the final stages of human history. David Helm in his commentary says it this way. He says, according to the Bible, the end has already begun. It came with Christ's resurrection and would be fully consummated upon his return. Therefore, we are in the final stages of history. We are living in the last days as Peter argued in his opening chapter, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1 verse 20. Listen, indeed, the end is at hand. The tone of Scripture is that you never know when he's going to come. You never know when your time is up. Life is so much more finite and fragile than you could ever think possible. And Peter wants to not only exhort us to that reality, he wants us to be prepared and ready for that reality. He wants us to live as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, because maybe he is. He wants us to live as if they misspoke the last month of your life, because maybe it is the last month of your life. And right here in these three verses, not only does he help us see the end of all things is at hand, but he gives us three very specific things to embrace and imbibe in our life so that we may be ready, so that when he returns, we're doing the right thing. We're serving the Lord and honoring him in the way that we've been called to do. And so I have three points this morning, three points that are really simple and just taken from the text, but really just one hope. And it's the hope that for you as a church and for you as individuals, you would increasingly live your lives ready for his return. You would live knowing Jesus is coming soon and being ready for that great moment. So what are the things that he wants to teach us to imbibe, to embrace in our lives, understanding that Jesus is coming soon? Well, three things, and here's the first. Number one, he wants us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Verse 7, 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What does it mean to be self-controlled and sober-minded? Well, listen, it simply means to be clear-headed. Clear-headed in the way you think. And in particularly in the context of 1 Peter, it's talking about the importance of being clear-headed in the decisions and choices we make, even when the squeeze of life is on. Even when you're doing it tough in our lives, even when pressure comes, the importance of being clear-headed, clear-minded in the decisions and choices we make. See, the original readers of this text, they are full-on doing tough. He, he explains in 1 Peter that these individuals are being persecuted, they're being maligned, and they're being slandered for their faith. They live um, in modern-day Turkey um, 2,000 years ago, and these individuals, they had actually got saved into this community. So they were all Gentiles, all unbelievers. A few of them had got saved, and the families and friends to start off with thought that was fine. Yeah, it's nice. Okay, this is lovely. You've met this Jesus person. But before you knew it, they found it very confronting because they didn't want to go to the parties anymore. They didn't want to do the things that, that their culture wanted to do. And before you know it, they felt it threatening, so they started to persecute them, slander them, and malign them. Their families reject them. Their friends reject them. They are doing it tough. So how encouraging it must have been for them to know, listen, the end of all things is at hand. The best is yet to come. You've been born again to a living hope. This isn't your home. Heaven is your home. And even though you're doing it tough, here's what I want you to remember. Be clear-minded. Don't just get pulled into your culture. But be clear-minded. Even when the pressure of persecution and slander is on, be clear-minded and make wise decisions for the glory of God. See, the squeeze for these original readers was persecution and maligning and slander. But that's not the only thing that squeezes us, is it? There's many things that squeeze us in life. Health issues, financial issues, family issues. The list goes on. There are things that happen in our lives that squeeze us, don't they? They put pressure on our lives and we can feel it. And he's saying, listen, even in amongst the squeeze, be sober-minded. Be clear-headed in the way that you're thinking. You know, one of the things that I've observed in all of our Western countries, particularly mine, but I'm sure you're the same, one of the squeeze that comes to us, particularly in Sydney, is simply the sheer fullness and busyness of our lives. When is the last time you met somebody and you say, oh, what did you do this week? And they say, oh, nothing, I was bored. You never hear that. They just say, what did you do? Oh, I was very busy. Everybody's very busy. Whether they're four years old or 104 years old, they're allegedly very busy. I have a grandma who's 99, lives in a home. How are you doing, grandma? Good, but very busy. What? What with? There's nothing going on in her life. But in her mind, she's very, very busy. We all live in a culture and in a Western world that is very busy and life can be full. You hear it world over all the time. And I'm no different. I can feel exactly the same things. You know, as Matt said, I have the privilege of being the Global Missions Director for Sovereign Grace, and which means I oversee 46 different countries outside the U.S. There's a lot going on all the time, as you can constantly feel pulled into so many different things and wonder how you're going to manage. So I actually read a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McKeown. I, I heard the title and I thought, yes, I want to discipline myself to pursue a lot less. And it's a fantastic book. It's not a Christian book. It's a secular book, but it has ministered to me big time. Because one of the things he does in the book is he explains Western culture. And he explains why it is that in our culture, we constantly feel the squeeze of busyness and fullness. 
And he gives three reasons why we're so squeezed in Western culture. The first reason is we have so many choices now in our lives that 60 years ago, they never had. Your grandparents did not have the same amount of choices that we have today. Even 20 years ago, and he talks about how in the last 20 years, wealth has increased, technology has increased, global travel has increased. So what does that equal? Choices. And then you get FOMO put in there and it gets even worse. There's so many choices that people have to make all the time. And it is so easy to then lose sight of the important decisions and the important choices. Peter Drucker, in his book, Managing Knowledge Means Managing Oneself, says it this way. He says, in a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it is likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, and not e-commerce, but an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they'll have to manage themselves with ever-growing options. This is what got my attention. He says, and society is totally unprepared for it. I think that's right. We have hundreds of decisions to make all the time. We have the money to do it. We have transport to make it possible. We have technology, so we're super connected. All these decisions to make all the time. Society is totally unprepared for it. So one of the first reasons why we live in such a busy mentality all the time is simply the amount of choices that we all have to make and we can make. The second reason is because of the reality of social pressure. You enjoy social media? Mmm. <laughs> it comes with some challenges. Greg McKeown. It is not just the number of choices that is increased exponentially. It is also the strength and number of outside influences on our decisions that is increased. While much has been said and written about how hyperconnected we now are and how distracting this information overload can be, the larger issue is how our connectedness has increased the strength of social pressure. Today, technology has lowered the barrier of others to share their opinion about what we should be focusing on. So it is not just information overload we deal with today, but opinion overload. Can you relate to that? Everybody's got an opinion on everything. As soon as you go on social media all the time, it's opinion, even Twitter or X or whatever it's called. It's just my opinion all the time. But you're bombarded with all these opinions. So we live in a society where you're squeezed by the sheer number of choices you make and then the social pressure to do the right thing. And there's a hundred different opinions on what the right thing is. And then... We buy into, number three, the idea that you can have it all. You can just do it all. We'll just do everything. The idea that you can have it all and do it all is not new. But what is new, McKeown writes, is the reality that it is a myth. People think they can have it, but it is actually a myth. And this unbeliever in this book, he talks about how as, as human beings, we're just finite individuals. And yet we like to live as if we're infinite and could just do all we want. He's an unbeliever and he starts talking like a believer. You know, the reality is we just have a limited amount of time, a limited amount of brain power, a limited amount of opportunities. But you add all these things together and you realize it makes for a concoction which is very difficult. I, th I would put to you, you are probably all infected with the idea that you can do it all and have it all much more than you think. He says it this way in the book. He says, though the idea that we can have it all and do it all is not new, what is new is how especially damaging this myth is today. 
and a time when choice and expectations have increased exponentially. It results in stressed people trying to cram yet more activities into their already overscheduled lives. It creates corporate environments that talk about work-life balance, but still expect their employees to be on their smartphones 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it leads to staff meetings where as many as 10 top priorities are discussed with no sense of irony at all. You know, I think he's right. You know, the word priority in the English language, it was created here. I love saying that when I travel to America or Australia. Um, the English language, it is ours, but we're loaning it to you. Now, the English language, obviously in the 1400s, it came up with this word priority. And it was always in the singular for 500 years, all they understood is you had one priority. It was a singular word. In the 1900s, it became pluralized. So in the 1900s, for the first time in human history, you had this idea that you can have two priorities or three priorities or four priorities. Well, guess what? That's grown over the years. So now you can have 10, 15, 20 priorities because you can do it all. So you put all this together. The reality that we have hundreds of decisions to make all the time, social pressure, all telling us what to do and giving us advice, and then us being infected with the idea that you could just have it all. I'm just going to have all these priorities. And so you have these busy lives that just get busier and busier and busier. And then people want to go on holidays all the time because I need a rest, I need a rest. But not realizing you're buying into a lie. You're being squeezed by culture. At which point, Jesus himself, through Peter, looks us in the eye and says, Hey, listen, as Christians, you need to be clear-minded. You need to be clear-headed. Don't get sucked in with what all they're doing. You need to be clear-minded in the way you go through your decision-making. The squeeze will come. But you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And he tells us you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I don't know about you, but for me, when you're under pressure, what is the first thing that leaves the building? Any sense of praying. Because I'm so busy. That's his point. He's like, you need to be sober-minded and clear-headed in the way you're going through life and thinking through life. Because it's then that you'll realize the most important thing you need to do is get on your knees and cry out to God for grace today. Not just make another decision. Given the reality that the end of all things is at hand, given the reality that Jesus is coming soon, he wants us to encourage us to understand then that we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded, clear-headed in the way we go through our lives and making decisions for the glory of the Lord. And then he tells us, number two, we need to love one another earnestly. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Two things then that he wants to help us notice about this love for one another. First of all, he, he wants this love for one another to be earnest, i.e. real. It has to be real and genuine and sincere. And what is he talking about? He's talking about one another. So look around. <laughs> this is your local church. He's talking about right here. Your love for one another has got to be real genuine and real sincere. And really honest. And then he tells us, notice else, he says, above all. Well, that's a key statement. That is the language of priority. He's saying, with whatever else you do in your life, above all, genuinely love the people in your church. Well, that's massive. 
This love for one another is not designed by God to be like an optional extra, I'll try if I can fit it in. No, he's saying that this needs to be a passion and priority of your life. Those people that God has joined you in, in the context of the church, connected to, put you together in a body and a family and a temple that he's building for his glory. You need to really love them. And you need to do it genuinely and sincerely for the glory of the Lord. You know, Paul picks up on this in in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I love that text because it's so visual. He's basically saying, listen, you might, have, you might be super gifted. A super gift to Grace Church Bristol. That's wonderful. But if you don't love him, you're like a symbol going, eh, eh, eh. It's not very helpful for anybody. It just isn't very helpful. If you haven't got love, you haven't got nothing. It's the basis of the glue that holds us together. A genuine affection for one another. A genuine love for one another. It's something that that John picks up on in 1 John 3.16. He says, For this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He's helping us understand the cross should motivate us towards our brothers and sisters when you look at it. When you understand that Jesus Christ laid down his life for his people, he's exhorting us to do exactly the same thing. Lay your life down for those around you. Love them sincerely. And so Peter picks up on this and actually has a theme throughout his entire letter. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says it. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 8. And then again here in 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's a passion and a priority. Let me ask you, how well are you doing at loving the people around you? Because that's a command from God himself. Especially in light of the reality that Jesus is coming soon. He wants to help us see this is super important. This is so important to the way we function and operate as a local church. And in the rest of verse 8, he gives the, the effect of what that means when we truly love one another earnestly. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. When you really love those around you, your love will cover a multitude of sins. You see, here's the sobering yet important reality. The assumption of that text is you and I will be sinned against by those around you. So if you're new to Grace Church, welcome. These people will sin against you in a matter of time. I mean, this is the way it's pointed. This is the way it's talking about. He's saying it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's going to happen in your life. That other people are going to sin against you at different times. There will be an insincere word. There will be an unkind moment. Add to that people's weaknesses and idiosyncrasies. There are going to be problems and challenges in your local church. But he's the sobering and yet encouraging reality. Not only will people sin against you, they will be on the end of your sin at different times as well. So anybody that just tried to remove themselves from the conversation, you're still engaged because you will be doing it sometimes as well. Unless you're telling me, no, it's okay, I'm Jesus. 
which I don't think anybody is. So the assumption is, given the reality of indwelling sin, we are going to be on the end at different times in our lives. It's a sad reality. It's a harsh reality. But it is a sobering reality. We will be on the end of other people's sins. But he tells us, yet love covers a multitude of sins. When you truly love those around you, that love can cover a lot of those sins. One commentator said it wonderfully. He says, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from a fire. I love that. When you truly love somebody and you're bothered about them, even when you're on the end of their sin, their statement they're making, or their idiosyncrasy, or their weakness, when you really love them, it's like a blanket that just takes the oxygen out of that situation. It doesn't go on for years and decades. You're like, you know what? Yeah, that was really unhelpful. But I'm just going to love them. And I'm going to move on for the glory of God. Listen, Peter isn't saying here, and what he isn't saying here is that we should just condone or ignore all sin. That's obviously not his point. Jesus tells you in Matthew chapter 18 that there is a time and a place to go to your brother who has sinned against you or your sister has sinned against you and tell him because you, you, you love him too. You want to help him see, listen, there's some cream cheese on your face and it's sort of smacking me in the face and you need to be aware of it because you love him. There's a time and a place to do that. And yet his point nonetheless is what we should always do, whether we bring it up with them or not, is we should be eager and quick to forbear with people and forgive them of their sin. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus is coming soon. We don't want to waste our lives just constantly with small squabbles and offenses. He's saying, listen, it's going to happen. Love them enough to cover a multitude of sins and then keep walking together for the glory of the Lord in the gospel and keep telling people about Jesus because Jesus is coming soon. How can you cover sins? Well, through love. It's the only way. Genuine, heartfelt love for those around you that enables you to cover a multitude of sins. And then thirdly, in light of the reality that the end of all things is at hand, he says, I want you to show hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality in headline is lovingly and warmly having others into your homes. Understanding that our homes are a gift from God. They're not designed to be like small castles where we go into our home and the drawbridge comes up and I have my little haven. No, they're a gift from God to be used for His glory. And one of the ways we do that is by showing hospitality, again, to one another. It's good to show hospitality to people outside the church. Obviously, that's a different text. This one talks about right here, the church itself. The importance of showing hospitality to one another. If you want to grow in love for one another as a church, guess how you do it? You show hospitality to one another. You have them in your homes and you care for them and love them. You see, one of the things that we are learning here is just how important hospitality is to Jesus. I remember when I was studying this text a few weeks ago, one of the things that was stark to me is just how you go from the sublime heights of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming back. What do I do? Well, you should open up your house. It seems a bit stark. It seems a bit ridiculous. But what we are learning is how ridiculously important hospitality is to Jesus. 
This is important to him. It's one of the big three in light of the reaction that I'm coming back soon, so make sure you show hospitality to one another. And quite frankly, if you're too busy to show hospitality to one another, then one of the things we all have to wrestle with, I believe, is are we too busy then with God's priorities or maybe just our own? Because this is a God priority. This is something He wants us to do for His glory in our lives. Paul mentions it in Romans 12 in a whole section where he talks about being stewards of God's grace, stewards of the gifts that he's giving us, basically. In Romans 12, verses 12 through 13, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. In light of all the gifts that he's given you for his glory, he's given you a home, he's given you a house or a dorm room or an apartment, wonderful. Then show hospitality to one another. Open up your homes. There's a wonderful book on this called The Hospitality Commands by Alexander Strauch. And here's what he says. He says, I don't think most Christians today understand how essential hospitality is to fanning the flames of love and strengthening the Christian family. Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. So hospitality is always costly. Yet through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, comfort, refreshment, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. Isn't that wonderful? When we open up our homes, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, comfort, refreshment, in one of the most wonderful ways that humans can actually understand. It's such a beautiful thing before the Lord. I remember when Emma and I went to the United States to go to pastor's college in the year 2000. We were taught a wonderful lesson on hospitality. I mean, the very family we lived with, they didn't actually live in a huge home. They didn't have a basement or nothing. And they had three kids, well, two kids. They had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and she was heavily pregnant when we arrived. And they had four bedrooms upstairs, and we had one of them, these newlyweds that have been married like four months. And in we rock. They're not pastors in the church. They're not leaders in the church. They're just people in the church that were willing to open up their home to a couple like us. And our lives were profoundly affected by their example. They were just so hospitable all the time. They encouraged us. They refreshed us. We were there having all meals with them. They totally brought us into their family. And different things I was learning at college, they were modeling before my eyes. We were learning about marriage kind of through them. We were learning about parenting through them. How did that even happen? Well, it happened because they were willing to open their doors to us. It would have been so easy to go, listen, to be honest, young family, uh, two kids, pregnant, not for us right now. That would be realistic. And yet for them, no, we want to open up our home. We want to show hospitality. It truly affected us. And we had this experience many times when we lived in the United States. And it shaped us um, so much to what we do today. I mean, we got invited out for tea all the time. And obviously, we all know what tea is, being English. But the Americans, I know there's some here, God bless you. Um, they don't always know what tea is in the same way. So we had so many times that we went out for tea, meaning English breakfast tea. And the only tea they didn't have is English breakfast tea. They had every other tea on the planet that they wanted to put creamer with. Creamer, what's that? No, no milk. Um, and it was, it was 
it was, the tea was bad, but the friendship was great. And we constantly were in people's homes because they just wanted to invite us in. People loaned us cars. People gave us all sorts of things just to try and help us to settle in the year we were there. What were we on the end of? We were on the end of profound hospitality. We were on the end of friendship and acceptance and fellowship and comfort and refreshment. And it taught us a lot. And my friends, I'm sure if I was here long enough, I'd find your church is the same. I just want to encourage you to do it all the more. It's hospitality that makes a church go from family in theory to family in practice. If you want a church that's just family in theory, don't open up your homes to each other. Easy. But if you want a church that is family in practice, then every home needs to be open. Because that's what family do. You have each other into your homes. And I'm not talking there about a three-course meal. It can be a sandwich. If you can't afford a sandwich, it can be a biscuit. If you can't afford a biscuit, we'll speak to your pastors and they might be able to help you. Um, but, you know, you just open up your home. Just be bothered about people. It's the glue that helps to form a family together. It's what cultivates the love that covers a multitude of sins, that helps you to be the city on a hill that you're called to be. So that unbelievers come into your midst, they go, man, they're tight. Yeah, they are. And Jesus is coming soon. So he tells us, show hospitality to one another. We have a house or a dorm room or apartment. Show hospitality to one another. And he tells us, do it without grumbling. I love the way this is, this is, you know, he just knows us so well, doesn't he? He knows as soon as you start opening up your homes, you're going to be there. You're going to be sweeping the floor again or doing the hoovering. And you go, I can't believe we've got more people over. More people over. I can't believe it. There's, more pe- there's always people in our house. You're going to be prone to grumble and whine that there's more people coming over. And he's saying, listen, don't, don't grumble about it. Show hospitality. Why? Because we're called to do it. And think about who it is that's calling us to do it. And think about who it is that we're inviting over. See, earlier on in in 1 Peter, he's told us that the people of God are the Lord's treasured possession. His holy people, his royal priesthood. Imagine the distinct privilege you have inviting somebody into your home that Jesus Christ died for. That the Father says, I love them. I love you're having them over. One, I love them. That's the privilege of hospitality. And every time we do it, every time we open up our homes, who we're actually modeling is God Himself, who sent forth His Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Why? So that you could come into His home, so that He could open the doors to you. And show you hospitality. So show hospitality to one another. But do it without grumbling. That's not going to help you. But do it with joy. Knowing who you're serving. Through the wonderful gift of hospitality. You know life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. None of us know when our lives might come to an end. And none of us know when Jesus is coming back. But what we do know from this text is that Jesus is coming soon. So I want to encourage you, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be clear-headed in your decision-making. You will face distinct cultural challenges. We all do. Be clear-headed in the way you go about your lives as you seek to honor King Jesus and live for him. Love one another earnestly, all out, allowing that love to cover a multitude 
of sins and show hospitality to one another, opening your homes to one another. What a joy and a privilege that we get to do that at all, don't you think? In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the greatest thing about us. The greatest thing about us is that God called your name and saved you by his grace. And that same king who died in your place is coming back soon. So let's live for him. Let's live for his smile and his gaze. And may all glory go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do thank you for bringing it to life in our minds and in our hearts today. Lord, I pray the lasting fruit of this message wouldn't be that we leave blessed in our hearing. But I pray the lasting fruit would that we would be blessed in our doing. We wouldn't just hear your word, we would heed it. For you are coming back soon. And Lord, what a day that will be. We long to see your face. And Lord, in light of that reality, would we be busy as your servants, bringing you pleasure. And would it all be for your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.